This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. I have really enjoyed this series that we've been going through on the book of Mark. What a genius little book this is. And as we've gotten a chance to look more closely at it, these stories about who Jesus is have come alive to me in new ways. I want to review for you all the way back, if you haven't been here since the beginning, I want to make sure that you remember Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a Bible with you, Uh, You can turn the pages or swipe through the pages until you get to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to remember what is happening in this book. Do you remember what he said? He said, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is his purpose in writing the book. And as we read these stories, we have to remember that while these are written for us, they weren't necessarily written to us. Do you know the difference of what I'm saying? These were written to a primarily Jewish audience. So you have to remember, as we go through the story today, some of these symbols mean very significant things to the audience. Now, this is for us in the sense that Scripture changes us. So may this story today change you. Let's read together. If you would, honor the reading of the word of the Lord by standing as we read. And these will be up on the screen. Let's read. Mark, now we're in chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. It's a dramatic pause. (laughs) But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. This little story that we read over these 11 verses is what is called a classic Markin sandwich. And if you're anything like me, it's a little risk. I'm looking at 4.30 in the afternoon talking about sandwiches to a group of people is a risky maneuver, I understand. Please don't go running down the stairs and head out to get a loaf of shoti and make yourself a sandwich. This is a different type of sandwich. Now, some of you uh, might be interested, as my English students were, where does this sandwich word come from? So I just have to do a quick aside and tell you the legend of why this happened. I can't vouch for the veracity of this story, but evidently there was this guy named John Montague, lived in the 1700s, and he was actually the Earl of Sandwich. Very interesting. And he was a notorious gambler, according to the stories. And once he spent 24 straight hours at a gaming table. He didn't even want to get up to go get something to eat. And so he ordered his valet to bring him some refreshment, some cold meat tucked between two pieces of bread so that he could continue to play. And when other people saw this, they thought, that guy is a genius. I'd like just as sandwich has. And so little by little, people started calling it a sandwich. Now, in every culture around the world, people have made their own version of this. You take a little lavash, you put in some fixins, you've got a shawarma. You take two buns and meat patty, you got a burger. But I want you to know that this Markin sandwich is actually brilliant. It's a literary technique that Mark used where he would start telling a story like one piece of bread And then he would just abruptly stop and go straight into this other story and tell this whole story and then again return back and finish the original story. A Markin sandwich. He did it nine times in the book of Mark. If you look around, this type of thing is peppered throughout the book. So interesting to me. Material where two episodes are narrated in three paragraphs. And in our story, verses 1 and 2, it's a piece of bread. Then verses 3 through 9, that's the meat. And then verses 10 and 11 is the other piece of bread. The stories in these Markin sandwiches always follow this A-B-A scheme. And the point that he's trying to make is in the meat, in the middle. The other stuff is what frames the story to help us understand the difference of what's in the middle. The author is literally telegraphing to you how to interpret the passage and where to focus on what's important. And so let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, we read about the setting where this takes place. We find that it's just two days before the Passover. Mark has been running along breathlessly throughout this book But now we actually have a time stamp. In other words, the clock starts ticking because this narrative about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
is drawing to its conclusion. So Mark gives us a time stamp. And he tells us that there's a conspiracy of the chief priests and the elders to seize Jesus and to kill him. We read about this scheming, this murderous plot that has been developing. But these guys aren't stupid. They realize that now's not the best time to grab Jesus and to kill him. Because in Passover, everybody's coming to Jerusalem. So it's been written that the population of the city would swell four or five times its normal population. So in Tbilisi, let's say we have a million and a half people. Imagine if over the course of a week, six million people descended on Tbilisi. The chaos and the madness that would ensue. So to seize Jesus openly in this setting would cause a riot because Jesus was popular with the people. And all these pilgrims filled with nationalistic pride, religious fervor during the time of Passover, remembering the exodus that we were just talking about earlier today. Man, that is not the time to do something unpopular with the people. And so they decide this is not the best time. They were extremely sensitive, and so they said, not now. Now, that's the bread. But all of a sudden, Mark just shifts gears and takes us to where is Jesus? So let's turn to the meat of this sandwich in verses 3 through 9. Now, I've never been to the Holy Lands. Some of you have had the opportunity to do that. But I wanted to figure out how far are we talking here? Like, was Jesus way out? Uh, I want to put a map up. This next picture is a map. And you can't see super well, but the red dot is the modern city of Al-Aizariah, Bethany in ancient times. The arrow points right over to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's only a couple kilometers away. So again, following our Tbilisi comparison, Jesus is out in Goldani having a shawarma, and the chief priests and the elders are scheming just a couple kilometers away. But they know they can't go grab him now because it's a really uh, dangerous time for them to do something like that. So we read in this section that Jesus is at the home of somebody named Simon the leper. And while he's there, an unnamed woman comes in And we read that she has an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, ointment of nard. And she breaks open this jar. The Greek word that's used there is literally to crush the jar. And she pours out all of the contents over Jesus' head. I wanted to put a picture of a typical jar of that time up for you to see. I want you to think about this woman coming in crushing this jar and pouring the contents over Jesus' head. Nothing was held back. It was an extravagant gift of anointing over Jesus' head. Now, a quick word on anointing, because if you are a Jewish person reading this story and you have this image in your head, immediately one thing comes to mind. And that is that this is a kingly anointing. In the tradition of the Jews, a king was anointed. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, how did Samuel show that David was going to be chosen to be the next king? He anointed him from his head down. A very special moment. 
And this is so fascinating because everybody who reads this is expecting that Jesus is being anointed to be the king. And they're thinking of it maybe in a different way than what Jesus is. Mark's motive for writing is that Jesus is the Messiah. That literally means anointed one in Hebrew. Messiah means anointed one. And so by showing this act, Mark is demonstrating that he is literally the Messiah. Jesus was king, but not in the way that the people wanted him to be. You see, Jesus says this act is not about me being king in the way that you want me to be. Jesus made himself nothing. And we can read this story with the benefit of seeing the whole big picture. Literally somebody being crushed and completely poured out. This is who Jesus was for us. Paul said in the Philippians that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And God exalted him as king to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He is king, but it looks very different than what the people gathered that night were thinking. These bystanders who saw this woman's act did not respond with excitement at this extravagant kingly anointing. Instead, they were snorting in anger. Oh, oh, what is going on? This lady. They were very, very frustrated that there had been such waste. And the expense of this perfume was seen as too extravagant to be poured out. It was seen as wasteful. And so they scolded her. And really, I can see their point. Passover, of all times of year, was a time when the poor were supposed to be remembered. You were supposed to give something during that time. And so they're sitting there thinking, wait a second, We could have used that to fulfill our Passover duties. And Jesus said, hey, to these protesters, he says, back off, leave her alone. What she has done is a good thing. Why are you troubling her? This reminds me a lot of the story of the sisters, Mary and Martha, when Jesus was in a home. And one is busy tidying up and she comes to Jesus and says, hey, Don't you see my sister over there? She's doing nothing to help. And he says, hey, leave her alone. She's choosing what's better. Some people, uh, there's a, a risk here that this passage could be abused to say, you know what, Jesus is saying, don't give money to the poor. Bring it here to the church. Don't give it out there. Sacrifice it here. That would be a real abuse of this passage. Jesus is not saying don't go give money to the poor. He's saying there's a priority. There's a time and a place. It's like at home when you ask your kids to do something and they say, but I thought you said before, (laughs) right, I did say that as well. But now I want you to focus on this. So the point here Jesus is making is that you will always have the poor with you. It is right and it is good to care for them. But remember, the clock is ticking. You will not always have me. And so he is showing them a matter of priorities. He's showing them that they have to be careful to choose what is right. With these words, he discloses the really extravagant act of devotion. And he says, she's anointed me beforehand for my burial. 
he shows them that what she's done is preparing him to be king, but not of an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And this story that has been racing along is moving quickly towards him making the ultimate sacrifice. The conclusion of this story is the betrayal that we read about in verses 10 and 11. It's quite a contrast to jump from this extravagant act of love and devotion to right away go to the story that Judas is headed out. Both will be remembered for quite some time, but for very different reasons. This unnamed woman for her extravagant act of devotion, this named disciple for his extravagant act of betrayal, they will be remembered forever. Judas has seen his opportunity to betray. And the sandwiching of these actions shows us very clearly what Mark is trying to focus in on. And it gives us three themes that I'd like to draw out today to leave you with. Three interesting themes that I see that are present in this text. The first one is a classic one of the insider and the outsider. When you read through the Gospels, you repeatedly see Jesus shocking people who think that they are insiders by completely flipping everything upside down on them and saying, you who think you have figured it out have completely missed it. And someone else who was perceived as an outsider is the only one who got it. This, for those of you who are seated within the sound of my voice today, should literally haunt you because you are insiders. Sitting here week after week, hearing the good news proclaimed in this place, may you not be one who miss the point. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, there were chief priests and scribes. They projected themselves as having it figured out. And he said, nope, you missed it. This woman is the one who has figured it out. There were lepers and unnamed women throughout the gospel. There were different people who are now insiders. They possess eternal life. In the kingdom of Jesus, there are older brothers who think they have figured it out. And there are prodigal sons who have repented, come to their senses, and run home to the Father. So this woman's action is memorialized, and it reminds me very much of the widow's sacrificial gift just a couple chapters earlier in Mark 12. An unnamed woman who brings what she has to Jesus. And Jesus says, she's got it. She figured it out. She has given what she can. Each of them serve as symbols of love and devotion. And both show in contrast to Judas and these chief priests and others like the rich young ruler what it means to follow Jesus with singleness of heart. The outsiders are honored and the insiders are exposed for what they really are. The second theme that I see here is really interesting because of the parallels with anointing that we can see in the Old Testament. In that story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you remember it well if you are an insider and have heard these stories. Samuel was to go to the house of Jesse and find a new king for this nation. And so Jesse parades before him these tall, rugged, handsome sons and says, surely this one must be the one. And God rejects every one of them. 
until it got all the way down to the runt of the litter, the smallest, most insignificant, the stinky shepherd boy. And when he came in, God said to Samuel, that's the one. And there was an anointing that took place. So consider our story today and think of the difference between these proud disciples that were insiders in the kingdom of Jesus. Think of the Pharisees and the chief priests and how this story exposes all of them for what they really were on the inside. Meanwhile, the loving worship of this woman is revealed. 1 Samuel 16, 7 sounds out like a gong. It rings in my mind. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And boy, did he see straight through the heart of people that day. Just the same as in the anointing story in 1 Samuel 16, Jesus in this classic Mark sandwich can see straight through and sees the heart. The third theme that is really interesting to me is this idea of a messianic surprise. The people of Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting for this Messiah, this King to come to be crowned and to deliver them from oppression. And so when the anointing takes place, I can just picture somebody reading the story and saying, here we go. And yet Jesus then surprises them and again flips the kingdom upside down. And he says, yeah, this is a kingly anointing, but it's preparing me for burial, not for a coronation. It's a different type of kingdom. Instead of a powerful conquering king, Jesus comes as the poor carpenter's son. And he must die a horrible death. And so Jesus literally redefines the Passover. Just a couple verses after this story, he says, This is my body, this is my blood, crushed, broken, poured out for you. Jesus has made himself the Passover lamb. And in doing so, he has completely redefined the story. I wonder if you would take just a couple moments to reflect with me this afternoon. I want you to think of these three themes and I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. When you look at these themes, I want to ask you in the insider or the outsider, have you thought about ways that you are functioning as an older brother or a younger brother in the prodigal son story? One of my favorite paintings is Rembrandt's Prodigal Son. It's hanging up in St. Petersburg in a museum. It's an amazing image of a young man before the father, completely humbled and just waiting for the father to act. In the background is an older brother who's looking on with disdain and disgust. And I have to be honest with you when I say that this is an issue we need to deal with in our hearts And ask God, are there ways in which I am functioning as an older brother? Are there ways in which I have become proud that I am an insider who has figured this out? The only requirement, it seems to me, to enter the kingdom of God is to repent and to put your faith in Jesus. We have added so many things to this long list to justify ourselves and make ourselves proud. And the stories that Jesus tells, it's a young man sitting in slop 
who comes to his senses and repents, returns to the Father. Would all of us humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I repent. Expose the dark areas in my heart where I'm functioning as a proud older brother. When we do that, it does something amazing for our community. It binds us together. Instead of looking at one another with pride or arrogance in a community, that doesn't ever work. But when we function with the humility of saying, I'm the chief of sinners in this place. Jesus said, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. What does that mean? Are there some who are healthy? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. You're all sick. And when we read that verse, we're like, hmm, he did come for those sick people. Uh-uh, you missed it. He came for you. And you are the sickest one. And I am the sickest one. So would we allow Jesus to look deep, to expose the sickness, and to heal? That's why he said he has come. Don't let the older brother mentality ruin what is an amazing journey of younger brother forgiveness and freedom. Number two, the anointing parallels. This, uh, what is exposed in the anointing that I talked about, God looks at the heart, is really for me the spiritual journey of the past two years. I'll never forget a Skype call in May of 2017. It was my father's birthday. And we spoke on the phone, on, on Skype, and he came on the computer screen, and I could tell that something was wrong. Usually when we talk, my mom is also on the screen, and she was off camera. But I could hear her, and she was crying. And I braced myself. My heart started pounding a little bit, and I thought, what is going on? And he said, we have some difficult news to share with you. So I said, okay, just a second. Deb, come in here. My wife Deb and I sat down and we looked at the camera and they shared with us that my uncle, who was in ministry, in public ministry as a pastor, as a church leader, for 40 years had been caught in a significant double life that had been hidden for 40 years. And when it was exposed, the ripple effects went for miles. The number of people who had been impacted, the number of families that were devastated, it was an unbelievable blow for our family. And I sat there that day looking at my mom, it's her younger brother, sobbing on this, the computer screen. And I thought, How is that even possible? How? So I'll tell you how it's possible. Because I was raised in this family. And in our family, one of the pieces that I... I don't think my parents ever said it growing up, but it was a message that I began to internalize, was that the public balcony of your life is one that you should really take good care of. So that when people see you, you're buttoned up and you're somewhat impressive and you've got your act together. But I never really learned how to deal with what I would call the private basement of my life. And there's a big difference between the public balcony that everyone can see and the private basement that is buried 
Our tendency as brothers and sisters in a community is to really shine up the public balcony, while at the same time to often ignore the private basement. Jesus in this anointing that happens exposes the private basements of the people who were there. And he also brings to life the private basement of this unnamed woman who is there pouring it all out. And he says, she has chosen what is right. May you never be one who takes great care of the public balcony like the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and really even the 12 disciples. They wanted to look good and to be honored, to be seen and to be noticed and to be celebrated. May you instead take great care of that private basement. I've appreciated every week when Salmoon and Bart lead us through times of confession in this place. That is an unusual act in the modern world because we don't want to dig deep and to expose. I want you to understand a two-year journey in my life has exposed incredible ugliness in my own heart. Depth of sin that is shocking. And yet I rejoice because God has been good and God has been faithful to dredge up and to heal what is sick and to fix what is broken. Praise God for his goodness in that. Don't leave it buried, my friends. Don't leave it buried. The last one is this messianic surprise and the idea of Jesus being crushed and poured out. I would ask you to reflect on this idea. How are you following the example of Jesus and offering yourself up to be crushed and poured out? In what ways... Are you living that kind of life? Many of us want to consolidate power. We want to grab hold of what can make us significant. Jesus said many times, you want to be great? Take the role of servant. Be the least. Follow my example. I'm crushed and I'm poured out. This is not what everybody was expecting from a Messiah, from a king. And Jesus turned it upside down and said, the king is the one who serves who makes himself nothing and therefore is exalted. In this little story, we've got the classic contrast on both sides of the narrative about scheming and betrayal. And in the middle, a model. At the start of this Passion Week, this narrative of Jesus headed to the cross, we start with this model of this unnamed woman who will forever be remembered for her great act of devotion and kindness towards our Lord. May we live in that way. Let's pray together. Father, today we come to you and we confess that there are many, many times when we function with scheming, desire in our heart, when we live in a way that is contrary to what you would have for us. God, it's unbelievable to me to consider the story of my uncle, somebody who lasted for 40 years in public ministry and who never dealt with that private basement. God, today I pray that you would look into our hearts, that you would reveal to us areas that we need to bring to you to live with singleness of heart and singleness of purpose. May we be like this unnamed woman coming to you with tremendous sacrifice of time, talent, finances, of our motives, our passions. 
May we give all to you for the expansion of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. Not so that we can consolidate power or influence for ourselves, but so that your fame may increase. I thank you for the genius of these 11 verses that show us a contrast. And I pray that you would help us to live as this woman lived. Would you go before us and empower us because we cannot do this on our own. We commit ourselves to you and ask that this week you would give us the strength to live as you would have us to live and the grace to look at others and to say, God, I am the chief of sinners. Allow me to engage with grace. May we not look at the world around us with harsh judgment, but with your eyes of grace. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.